Hey, I watched a documentary just recently on Netflix called Heroin. It's kind of a play on words with the drug heroin and a female hero, heroin. And uh, it's a really great documentary. I highly recommend it to you. Um, And it's about uh, this town in West Virginia where these three women, one is a fire chief, one is a judge, and one is a street missionary, are trying to impact change because of the significant heroin overdose problem uh, in in their town. Uh, And it's... uh, um, it's a growing problem, not only in West Virginia, in Huntington, where they're at, but also around the world. Specifically, it is also a problem in our communities. And when you consider the money that we're spending on drug care, drug prevention, and overdose care, it's staggering. I was just talking to somebody before service. When you include all those things, drug control and care efforts, $320 billion uh, over the la- from, from 2013 to 2016. And I, for one, I'll just be honest with you, I get a little bit jaded by that. Sometimes those things bother me, um, that we have to spend money on that. And if you're impacted by drug use yourself or in your family, I don't mean to be uh, rude. I'm just trying to be honest because we're, get- gonna, we're gonna get to a point this morning. I was talking to my mom recently. My mom has been uh, an EMS um, or a a paramedic for the last 30 years in rural Ohio. And she was saying that in any given shift, she could have two or three heroin overdoses. She even mentioned that there was one time where she saved saved the life of the same person twice in the same day from heroin overdose. And sometimes I can get bothered by that. Why are my tax dollars going to save the lives of people who would use heroin, especially if we know how addicting it is? And I wonder what are some of the other areas that sort of bring out that attitude in you and I? Because I don't think the attitude that I have towards it is necessarily Christ-like. So what are some of the areas where you might get mad about things? Maybe you have a problem with using our tax dollars to keep pedophiles in jail. Maybe you just think like they should just get a swift death sentence. Or maybe you're irked by some of the different social programs in our government and you don't feel like your tax dollars should pay for someone else's housing or groceries or medical care. Maybe you have very strong views about biblical marriage, which are okay, but then it causes you to be a bigot or rude or unloving. Maybe you don't feel like we should be allowing refugees into Cleveland and so serving them or extending to them the love of Jesus is kind of beyond what you might be comfortable doing. Or maybe the idea of taking the gospel to Muslims, particularly post 9-11, is not something that you're really going to be engaged in. Well, I think there are a lot of things that we get mad about, and I've invited a friend to talk to us this morning. Eric Kramer is one of our missionaries. He and his wife, Sheena, are in Mexico. And I think that Eric, in some of the areas where we might say, man, I'm mad about this. Eric has chosen instead to say, you know what? I was made for this. And so, Eric, would you just tell us a little bit about uh, the work that you guys are doing in Mexico? Sure. So I'm not a speaker, guys. So I'm an anesthetist. Uh, My family and I are CVC missionaries. We moved down to Mexico in 2014. Uh, We worked with an indigenous tribe called the Taromara. They're an unreached people group, even though they're only nine hours south of uh, Mm. El Paso. Um, and what I do there is I do the anesthesia, 
I, I started and run the ICU. Uh, I do the critical care uh, flight medevac program and then also organize the trauma and pre-hospital stuff. Um, but all of that is kind of a baseline thing to provide a platform to us to reach this unreached people group with the gospel. My wife uh, does the financial business, not so cool stuff, uh, but together, yeah, we've been doing it for three years. And so down there, you sometimes have to care for people that are that we that 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 we might in America say, "Man, I'm I'm mad about these people," but you've chosen to care for them. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So in Mexico, where we're at specifically, it's opium growing uh, areas. Uh, the Sinaloa cartel is where we're at. Uh, there's no police, and often we will get cartel members in. Uh, a couple years ago, there was a massive war between two different factions, and uh, they poured into our hospital. And our role, uh, because we're Christians, because uh, we want to serve Jesus and we don't want to um, differentiate between people, we serve everyone equally the same through the love of Jesus. And so, yeah, we, we'll, we'll operate on cartel members uh, and uh, their victims alike. Now, you've also recently, uh, Eric and his family are home on furlough for a bit, uh, but a actually Eric went on another mission trip from America, and you were in what, is, what would be Nineveh, modern-day Iraq, working on some ISIS members. Would you tell us a little bit about that? So back in February, if you guys recall, there was, uh, we were at P fever pitch with the dialogue about uh, immigrants and refugees. And uh, my wife and I were both uh, especially convicted by the way the church was talking about immigrants and refugees amongst uh, Christian circles. Um, we were convicted about the way uh, people's attitudes maybe were about immigrants or re refugees, people fleeing desperate situations. And I didn't want to be just another person on Facebook saying things. Uh, so I was extremely convicted about it. So in August, uh, July and August, I ended up in Mosul, Iraq, with Samaritan's Purse at the Emergency Field Hospital, uh, doing anesthesia there, caring for, uh, yeah, some ISIS members and also their victims. Um, uh, one would be an ISIS member, the next one would, might be a kid that was blown up by an IED. Mm. And so here's maybe the million dollar question. When you consider drug cartel members, when you consider ISIS members, like why would you keep that guy alive? If you look at what Jesus said, Jesus says a lot of things that superficially sound very nice and easy to swallow like, love your neighbor. But if you dive deep into what Jesus talks about, Jesus says some very hard things, some very tough teachings. Matthew 5, 43 through 45, one of the reasons that I went down there says that you're supposed to pray for your enemies, pray, and then love them. Love is action. Love is doing things. Love is also unconditional, as demonstrated by Jesus. It doesn't matter if you are an ISIS member or if you're someone at the Cleveland Pregnancy Center. In God's eyes, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned, and no one is deserving, but God commands us to go and share the gospel with all of them through our actions and our words. Mm. And so, what if there's somebody here, would you speak to, what if there's somebody here who might say, hey, Eric, just let him die, man. <clears throat> One of the, we had a bunch of bunkers in the hospital uh, that would protect us from mortar rounds if, if there was a, is an attack. One of the bunkers had been turned into kind of a devotional area. And inside the bunker, someone had written that verse that kind of motivated me in the first place to go to Iraq. Mm. It's Matthew 5, 43 through 45, that same verse. 
And this was written by someone who's not naive, someone who's not ignorant. This is by, written by someone who saw children shredded by ISIS IEDs, who watched them die. I took care of a lot of kids while I was there. Every single one of them that was a fresh IED died. None of them survived. Mm -hmm. That person wrote that on there because she understood what Jesus meant when she said, love your enemies. It's an active, unconditional thing as demonstrated by Jesus who came to earth to die for his enemies, the enemies of God, mm -hmm. so that we might have a new life in Christ. There was a, there's an orthopedic surgeon there, uh, a Muslim guy that I worked with, who watched the fellowship believers that were serving the ISIS members and the Iraqis at that hospital. And through the testimony of the believers' words and actions, he himself became a Christian. Mm. But he couldn't even tell his wife because she would have turned him into the imam. Mm. When we talk about why, let pe why, why help people, why help the let these people live, there was, a, there was a, another colleague of mine who a young man came in shot through the chest and my friend, uh, my colleague, put his finger through his left ventricle and held the wound closed until the surgeons could stitch, stitch it closed. That guy walked out six days later, having witnessed something he'd never seen before in his life. The love of Christ shown by people who were supposed to be his enemies. But these people were non-judgmental. They served him to the best of their abilities, and it's like nothing he'd ever seen in his life before. And now one day, he may, I may be with him one day at the foot of Jesus in heaven. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And that's what it means to be a Christian. It's not to, you, we don't have the right to say this person deserves, deserves to hear about the gospel, but this person doesn't because they've done too many bad things. Mm -hmm. We don't have the right to say, I'm going to share the gospel with this person, but not this one. They're too bad. The Bible says, commands us, Jesus commands us to go out into the world and share the gospel of Christ mm -hmm. through our words and actions, and that he is the one that's in charge of convicting people and bringing them to himself. Mm -hmm. Amen. Would you guys thank Eric for being here this morning? I feel like I could just go, okay, and we're done, you know. Um, we've got a bit of time to go in our sermon, so I don't want this to get lost. You're going to have an opportunity to meet Eric and his wife, Sheena. They're going to be out in the foyer. I want to encourage you to learn about their ministry, to learn about how you can pray for them, and to learn about how you might be able to go and serve with them. So don't get that, that fact lost in the rest of my sermon. Make sure you stop and greet them and learn more about how you can serve them. What Eric said might have made you mad. And if what Eric said made you mad, you might be a little bit like Jonah. Because that's how Jonah feels. Jonah feels like the Ninevites are not deserving of God's mercy. And so that's why he doesn't want to go to them. There's a part at the end of the heroin documentary that I mentioned where they're at a town meeting and this man stands up and he says to Jan Rader, the fire chief, the availability of Narcan, this is the drug that, that pulls people out of their overdose state. He says the availability, of, the availability of Narcan is just perpetuating the problem. What would you say to that? And she says this, the only qualification for someone to get into long-term recovery is that they have to be alive. And so if I have to save someone's life 50 times, that is 50 times for them to be alive. My aim this morning is to convince you, Christian, if you're in the room, that the only qualification 
to share the good news, the love, the mercy, the grace of Jesus Christ with somebody. The only qualification ought to be that they're alive and nothing else. If you would, open your Bibles to Jonah 3. That's where we're going to be. Real quick overview. Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh, a people that he didn't want to go to. And what Jonah decided was instead of following God's call, he ran away from it. He got on a ship. He sailed to the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. God pursues him. He causes a storm to whip up. Jonah ends up jumping off of the boat because he knows that God had brought this storm. God causes a giant fish to swallow him. Jonah kind of repents while he's inside the fish, and the fish spits him out on the dry land. And so then here we are in Jonah 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, we can't just gloss over those first two sentences. You might think they're narrative. They're not. They're really, really, really important. Here's my first point this morning. My first point is that God is patient with our disobedience. God is patient with our disobedience. Notice in verse one, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, right? One might think that after the first time Jonah runs away, he gets on a ship, runs away from God's call. One might think that God would say, fine, I'm not going to use you then. You're out. I don't, I'll just use somebody else. But he doesn't. Instead, he pursues Jonah and he goes after Jonah and he disciplines Jonah to draw him back into his plan. And he goes and he brings Jonah to a place where he has another chance to obey, a second chance to obey. And I'll be honest with you, I'm really glad that God is patient with my disobedience. And I bet you're glad that he's patient with your disobedience. If you know me, my mom and dad are here this morning, they know that I am really good at disobedience, both to them in my younger years and to the Lord. I sort of went on a little bit of a binge in the later years of high school and into college to kind of see how much fun I could have. And if you'd have told me that, uh, that the Lord was going to bring me here, that I would be a pastor someday, I probably would have laughed at you. But he didn't leave me in that place. I didn't fix myself. God was patient with my disobedience, and he drew me to himself. He disciplined me in order that I might have a second chance. I was, I was thinking about that, like if God had not been patient with my disobedience, if you would have if, if just kind of let me go, it would have impacted everything in my life. Who I married, my children, my job, my life today would be completely different if God had not been patient with me and your life would not be the same if God had not been patient with you. If God had not been patient with you, who knows where you would be? And yet I think a lot of times we forget that God has been patient with us. God is patient with our disobedience, but I want to warn you, he will not be patient with your disobedience forever. Hebrews reminds us, as well as other texts remind us, that God's patience will end at some point. Sometimes it's during our lifetime and sometimes it is at death, where you will not any longer have a chance to do what he has called you to do. Romans 2, Paul says this, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. 
We cannot presume on God's patience to the nth degree. Today, my friends, is the day of repentance. Today is the day for you to repent of any area in your life where you are withholding the gospel, where you're withholding Jesus' love, where you are withholding grace and mercy from someone because of your political opinions or your social opinions or your racial opinions or your religious opinions. God has been patient with our disobedience and we ought to extend that patience and forbearance to others. God is patient with his plans, number one. Number two, God is persistent with his plans. Sorry, God is patient with our disobedience. God is persistent with his plans. Look at verse two. He says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Have you ever, um, this was the case in my house growing up, uh, my brother was really good at this game. Like the rule was clean your plate, right? You have to eat your dinner, you know? But we knew that mom and dad had things to do and they didn't want to sit there and watch us all night long. So if we hung around long enough, the rules would change, right? The rules would change from clear your plate to, okay, eat half of your peas and five bites of chicken. And we would just kind of wait it out. We'd wait it out until we got, you know, until we got like a, like, like a lesser, uh, uh, you know, expectation. And I think maybe that's how Jonah kind of feels. I mean, like he's run away. Like all the parents are nodding. Like, I know that one. That might be how Jonah feels, right? He feels like, well, maybe because I've run away and maybe because I've taken a bunch of time, maybe God is just kind of tired and he's changed his plan, so I won't have to do something that's so hard. I won't have to go to the Ninevites who I despise so deeply. Maybe he'll give me some sort of other mission that's a little bit easier. And this command in chapter three is almost verbatim the command in chapter one, arise and go to the Ninevites and tell them what I tell you to say. See, God's persistent in his plan with both Jonah and with the Ninevites. He's working something in Jonah, and he plans to do something in the Ninevites. And I'll be honest with you, again, I am thankful that God has been persistent in his plans for me. Because if he had not been persistent in his plans for me, if he had not pursued me, if he hadn't disciplined me and drawn me back to himself, my life would be pretty far off the rails, and so would yours. I mean, aren't... Think about how, however it is that you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Like, aren't you glad that God was persistent in his plans for you? Aren't you glad that he was persistent in, the, in that friend's life or that family member's life who continued to share with you the love of Jesus? Aren't you thankful that he was persistent with the plans of the radio program or the pastor or the book or whatever it happened to be that finally drew you to himself? God is persistent with his plans for us, and yet, so often, we forget, and we do not want him to be persistent in his plans for other people. We need to remember God's initial plan is the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And that command has not changed. It's not go into, the, go into all the world and make the disciples of the people that you like. Go into all the world and make disciples of people with whom you feel comfortable. It's just a blanket statement. 
Go and make disciples of all people, all nations, zero qualifications. You know, one of the reasons that I think, that I'm convinced that I have unchristlike feelings and that you have unchristlike feelings that cause us not to take the gospel to people is because we think we're better than we are. Pride wells up in us and we forget about who we are outside of Christ. We forget about the way that he has been patient with us and persistent with us. We forget about who we are outside of him. We don't really have a clear idea of the mess that's really inside of our hearts. And so when we look at other people with whom we disagree on the basis of social, political, racial, religious reasons, we sort of think, well, you don't deserve the grace and mercy of God. And I would say to myself and to you, how dare you? How dare I presume upon what God's plan is for other people when we have been extended so much mercy? Listen to Paul's uh, comments in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And the prideful, pharisaical, religious person will go, yeah, that's right, and not read the next sentence which says, and such were you. We somehow forget that that's who we are outside of Jesus Christ. And we start pointing fingers <coughs> at everyone else. I would encourage you to step back a little bit and get a real clear idea of what's really in your heart who you really are outside of Jesus Christ. And I think when we get a clearer picture of that, when the Holy Spirit allows us to see that, our attitude might go from, I'm mad about this to, I was made for this. I was made to take this message to anyone, anywhere. It's what he put me here for. It's what he saved me for. It's what he rescued me for. God is patient with our disobedience. He is persistent with his plans. And finally, he is powerful to save. Verse 3. He is powerful to save. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, that's not the evangelism tactic that we teach at CVC. Right? Like three circles is not like walk in. Like I was talking to the middle schoolers the other week, and I said, what if you were to walk into your school and jump up on the table in the cafeteria and go, North Royalton Middle School, yet 40 days and you will be overthrown. <coughs> not great evangelism tactics. <coughs> Excuse me. And yet... Look at verse five. And the people of Nineveh believed God. That ought to blow the brains out of the back of your head. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Something miraculous is happening here. Something extraordinary is happening here. You know how evil the Ninevites were? Horrible, 
horrible, cruel, brutal people. They were the ISIS of the ancient Near East. And Jonah, all he does in Hebrew, it's five words. Five words in Hebrew that he says, in 40 days you'll be overthrown. And the people believed God. If you continue reading in verse five, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. No qualifications, all of them. It gets all the way to the king. He creates a mandate across the whole city that everyone is to repent. 600,000 scholars would estimate people in Nineveh repent. It is the greatest mass conversion of all time. Now, what are we, so what? What does it matter to you? What does it matter to me? I want you to notice the way that the Bible works is it's not just a story for ancient times, something that just happened way back when, but this shows us, this is teaching us that God was on a mission and still is on a mission to rescue and save the least of these in the world. God doesn't need special skills. He doesn't need some sort of excellent evangelism tactics. He doesn't need perfect plans or apparently even people that are 100% sold on the mission. He just needs people to be obedient to what he calls them to do and watch him do what he plans to do. And so I just wonder if you and I were to stop being mad about so many things and start considering ourselves made for gospel proclamation, what might happen in your neighborhood and what might happen in this city and what might happen around the nations if we stopped complaining about things? If we got off of Facebook for a while, we spend so much time stewing and complaining on the issues of immigration and same-sex marriage and football players kneeling and healthcare costs and refugee care and welfare and minimum wage and on and on and on. I'm not saying you can't have opinions about those things. I'm not saying just to, uh, to, to not care about the, the things in our government or the things that, 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 uh, in, that, that dictate how we spend our money or how our taxes are spent. You can have opinions on those things, but the problem is we stop there. We stop at our opinions and we never move forward. We sort of take all of the things <coughs> that we have opinions on and we put them onto, we superimpose them over gospel proclamation as if anyone we disagree with does not deserve to have the gospel. Our refrain seems to be, I'm mad at this. And I would say, you know, here's, there, there's always these, man, this world is so messed up. Man, this world is going to pot. Man, things are so screwed up. Yeah, it is, and that ought not surprise you. What we ought not see, what we ought not do is sort of, well, the world's just, just a mess out there. Sin, evil, are reigning. What we need to do is put on some gospel goggles that would see, as Jesus says, a harvest that is plentiful. The problem in our world is not that the harvest is not plentiful. The problem in our world is not that evil is reigning. The problem in our world is the same as it was in the first century. Jesus says in Luke 10, there are too few laborers. 
too few Christians who will get off of their rear ends and do something about what they say they believe. Too few people who are just mad about stuff instead of saying, I was made for this. I was made for gospel proclamation. Too few people who forget God's patience with them and God's persistence with them. Let's pray. From the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Would you make it so, Lord? Would you make your name great in Cleveland and in the United States and among the nations? And would you use us? Would you use us, the people who were once your enemies, who don't deserve your grace, who don't deserve your mercy, your enemies who you have called now through your son to be sons and daughters? Would you use us in any way that you see fit? We will obey We will not run like Jonah. We will trust that your plans are perfect and that you have the power to save. We will believe that there is one reason for which you made us to make your name great in this world. We were made for that. Drive it into our hearts, strip away whatever gets in the way of that one thing that we might be used by you, that we might see a radical thing happen because of our obedience. In your name we pray, amen.